Which disease is one of the earliest diseases recognized in history and has also been deemed the disease of kings due to its link to consumption of rich foods and excessive alcohol? The answer to these questions is gout. The uric acid that causes gout can be thought of like matches. Everyone has uric acid in their blood, but when too much uric acid accumulates around a person's joints, it can act like matches, setting the joint on fire. Today, our patient has gout, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled The Disease of Kings. All right, now, time for a minute physiology. Our joints are lined and sealed within a joint capsule by a synovial membrane. The synovial membrane also functions to secrete a clear, sticky fluid called synovial fluid. This helps to keep the joints lubricated. Gout occurs when there is a deposition of monosodium uric crystals in synovial fluid and other tissues, causing an inflammatory arthritis of the joints affected. Why do the monosodium uric crystals deposit in the joint? To understand this, we will go through the physiology of purine metabolism. Purines are necessary components of the nucleotides adenine and guanine, and thus are an essential component of DNA. There is tight regulation of purine synthesis and degradation in the body because intermediates of purine metabolism can be toxic to some cells. Uric acid is the relatively insoluble end product of purine metabolism. 70% of uric acid is excreted through the kidney with the remainder excreted through the gut. When there's increased production or reduced renal elimination of uric acid, hyperuricemia can result. The saturation threshold of urate is approximately 400 micromoles per liter. And above this threshold, monosodium urate crystals form and deposit in cartilage, bone, and periarticular tissues in peripheral joints. Approximately 10% of people with hyperuricemia develop clinical gout. Gout affects 1-2% to of the population. It affects men more than women at a 3-to-1 to 4-to-1 ratio. It most frequently occurs in men greater than 40 years of age and women greater than 65 years of age. Metabolic syndrome, composed of insulin resistance, obesity, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension, is strongly associated with gout. Other risk factors include conditions of increased urate production, such as alcohol intake or a high purine diet, or conditions of decreased urate excretion, such as loop and thiazide diuretics, chronic kidney disease, and a family history of gout, which usually indicates genetic mutations in urate excretion. You can now see why gout has historically been referred to as a disease of kings, given the dietary risk factors associated with this disease. All right. So now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. A gout attack occurs when crystals shed from the articular cartilage into the joint space. 
The presentation is most frequently monoarticular and most commonly affects the lower extremities. When a gout attack occurs in the first metatarsophalangeal joint, or the first MTP, it is called podagra. Other commonly affected joints are the midfoot joints, ankle, knee, fingers, wrists, and elbows. Shoulders, hips, and the spine are rarely affected. Therefore, what kind of patient will you expect gout in? Most often, your patient will present with a mono- or oligoarticular arthritis. This means that your differential diagnosis will include conditions with similar presentations, such as septic arthritis, joint or periarticular bone trauma, cellulitis overlying the skin of a joint, osteoarthritis flare, calcium pyrophosphate crystal deposition disease, or CPBD, also known as pseudogout, early rheumatoid arthritis, and reactive arthritis or other seronegative spondyloarthropathies. You will need to consider this differential when conducting your history and physical exam. Your first step in any patient encounter will be to assess whether your patient is stable or not. What is their GCS? Are their ABCs stable? What are their vitals? As discussed previously, the differential diagnosis of gout includes infectious and traumatic etiologies in which your patient may present in an unstable state. Once you're sure that your patient is stable, you can move forward with your assessment. On history, you want to clarify the acuity of joint symptoms and how many joints are involved. You want to ask about gout risk factors, such as personal or family history of gout or metabolic syndrome, diet, and alcohol use. You also want to ask about features of the history that might point you towards an alternate diagnosis of the differential, such as a history of osteoarthritis, history of fever for septic arthritis, history of trauma, history of recent GI illness for reactive arthritis, or history of inflammatory bowel disease, psoriasis, or inflammatory spinal arthritis for seronegative arthropathies. An important thing to mention here is that some conditions can coexist. For example, osteoarthritis can predispose a patient to develop gout. Historical characterizations of an acute gout flare are usually an acute, severe monoarthritis with onset typically in the early morning. The peak severity usually occurs within 12 to 24 hours of the onset of the flare. On physical exam, inspect the overlying skin for possible cellulitis. Inspect the joints for gouty tophi, which are collections of solid urate that have deposited in the soft tissue around joints. Inspect for bony changes associated with osteoarthritis, such as squaring of the CMC joints or the presence of Heberdine's or Bouchard's nodes. Assess active and passive range of motion of the involved joints. Palpate the joints for warmth, tenderness, and effusion. Assess the neurovascular status of the distal components of the limb. As discussed previously, gout is most frequently monoarticular and usually affects the lower extremities. A classic presentation is an acute arthritis of the first MTP joint. The joint will feel warm, swollen, and will be exquisitely tender to palpation. For your workup, you will want to order a CBC to check for signs of leukocytosis to suggest an infection. You will also want to order a creatinine to assess for worsening kidney function as a contributing factor for hyperuricemia. You should also order a serum urate level. However, this is controversial during an acute gout attack. While an elevated serum urate level might help increase your suspicion of an acute gout attack, a lower normal serum urate level might occur during a gout flare and should not be used to rule out a gout attack. X-ray imaging of the joint may be obtained to assess for trauma. 
The key investigation to aid in the diagnosis of gout and Trulette septic arthritis is a joint aspiration and synovial fluid analysis. There are four major components of the synovial fluid analysis. These are appearance, white blood cell count, and percent polymorphonuclear cells, gram stain, and microscopy. In gout, which is an inflammatory type of arthritis, the appearance will be translucent, there will be no bacteria on gram stain, and on polarized light microscopy, there will be crystals present. The crystals of gout will be needle-shaped and negatively birefringent crystals, whereas the crystals of pseudogout will be rhomboidal and weakly positively birefringent. Both gout and septic arthritis result in an inflammatory arthritis, so the white blood cell count will be greater than 2,000 per millimeter cubed, and the presence of crystals and the results of the gram stain in culture will be the most helpful for differentiating between these two conditions. It is important to know that gout has two clinical phases. The first phase is characterized by intermittent acute attacks that spontaneously resolve, typically over 7 to 10 days, with asymptomatic periods between attacks. If the hyperuricemia is inadequately treated, transition to the second phase can occur over time. The second phase is called chronic tophaceous gout and usually involves polyarticular attacks, symptoms between attacks, and crystal deposition, or tophi, in soft tissues and joints. Irreversible joint damage, chronic pain, and disability can occur with ongoing crystal deposition. The goal of therapy in the acute attack is to reduce inflammation. NSAIDs, colchicine, and steroids can all be used as options. NSAIDs should be avoided in renal failure, heart failure, or people with a history of GI bleeds. Colchicine should be avoided in renal failure. Steroids can be used in renal failure, but be careful in poorly controlled diabetics. If the gout is monoarticular, a steroid injection is highly effective with less risk of side effects. Duration of therapy is usually 7 to 10 days or until symptom resolution. After the acute gout attack, most patients will require treatment for hyperuricemia to prevent future gout attacks. Urate-lowering therapy is usually started two to four weeks after the resolution of the acute attack, which reduces the risk of exacerbating the attack. The target serum uric acid level is less than 360 micromoles per liter. The most common class of medications used for hyperuricemia are xanthine oxidase inhibitors, such as allopurinol or febuxostat. Xanthine oxidase is an enzyme that metabolizes xanthine to uric acid in the purine metabolism pathway. By inhibiting this enzyme, less uric acid is produced. Another class of medications for hyperuricemia are the uricosuric drugs, which block renal tubule urate reabsorption. Probenesid is a drug in this class. It is important to adjust the dosing for all of these medications in renal impairment. All right, time for a medicine minute. Did you know Benjamin Franklin suffered from gout? In fact, he wrote an essay titled Dialogue Between Franklin and the Gout in 1780 during a six-week period where he was confined to his home due to gout. In this essay, Franklin comically reflects on his indulgences in conversation with the gout. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled The Disease of Kings. Today's episode was written by Dr. Heather Bannerman, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Mark Matzos, rheumatologist. 
This episode is recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is managed by Dr. Zara Morali and Leah Karyanopoulos. The project is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt Vegas. Music production by Lakshman Fazantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe it wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Internet Work, and please tune in again soon.